0: In 1844, Konstantin von Tischendorf was a 29-year-old university professor traveling in the Middle East. He was on the lookout for ancient manuscripts. He happened to be in the library at St. Catherine's Monastery, an orthodox monastery. They have a number of rare old books there. And as he was looking through them, he looked to the corner and there was a basket. And in the basket, there were a bunch of leaves out of a book, pages out of a book. And he noticed that on the pages, he saw what he said was the oldest Greek writing he had ever seen before. So he investigated further and discovered that what was in this basket, ready to be thrown out, were pages out of a very, very old, very rare, very expensive manuscript of the Bible. He was horrified at the thought of these things. The next thing that would happen to them would be, they would be thrown out. And the librarian said, oh, we just burnt two more baskets from the same book just like that and I am concerned that we are doing something even worse taking something that's priceless and treating it as if it's common talking about the church and you're saying come on you don't have to look very far to see the faults in the church I mean let me take you to my home church and introduce you to some of the nuts that are there Let me tell you about some of the decisions they've made. Let me tell you about the pastors they've chased off. Let me tell you about the pastors who were like Protestant popes. I know you don't have to look very far to find faults in the church. I grew up in it. And if you look back, it's just as bad. You come to things like the, the Crusades and the Inquisition. And if you keep going, you get to the early church, and that was no heaven on earth. They had people lying about what they gave in the offering. They had people taking communion unworthily, Paul says, and dropping over dead at communion. I'm kind of glad God doesn't do the same thing today. They had hypocrites. They had heretics. They had legalists, just like today. So how can I say this is so priceless, so precious, when it's so fault-ridden? Well, I think one reason it is so fault-ridden is because the church has not remembered who it is and what it's supposed to be doing and that many of those faults can be traced to those failures I think that's I think that's one reason why the Apostle Paul in this letter of Ephesians spends so much time talking about the church the nature of the church and the mission of the church because he knows how precious it is he knows what it ought to be doing and he wants to steer it clear of the faults which he sees so frequently One of those passages is ephesians 1 verse 15 through 23 let's look there for this reason paul says ever since i heard about your faith in the lord jesus and your love for all the saints i've not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers i keep asking that the god of our lord jesus christ the glorious father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better i pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Much of this passage, as you see, is talking about, Paul's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the authority of Jesus. He says Jesus' authority is over every other authority, every human authority. Now, to the Ephesian Christians, the very first thing they would have thought of when they heard Paul say this or write this was the authority of the Roman Empire. This was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire and one of the most powerful Roman cities in all of Asia Minor. Everywhere you look, even today, even in ruins, the city of Ephesus is filled with monuments to the grandeur and glory of Rome. There's a a theater that seats 25,000 people There are monuments to Augustus and other emperors. There are statues. There's even a marble street. When you mention human authority, the Ephesians are going to think of Rome. And Paul says that the power of Christ is greater than any human authority, even Rome. But these terms that he uses, power, authority, rule, dominion, every title that can be given, by them, Paul means not only human authority, but spiritual authorities as well. What he's saying is that not only is Christ greater than every human authority, but every supernatural force, he's greater than those. And again, the Ephesians would have immediately thought about their prized possession. Had lots of temples in Ephesus, lots of famous temples, but the one most famous, in fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was the temple to the goddess Diana. Over 150 columns, each of which you could hardly get your arms around. Incredibly wealthy, because in the ancient world, they used temples as banks. Incredibly powerful cults surrounding the temple of the goddess Diana. And Paul says that Christ's authority is greater even than the authority of the great Diana of the Ephesians. Paul even tells us why Christ has this authority. He says it has to do with Christ's death and resurrection. It was after the resurrection that God elevated him to this place of authority. Now, to get the swing of this, we got to back all the way up to the garden of Eden. God creates the world and he creates it perfect. It's very good. Everything is just the way he wants it to be. Human beings are in such fellowship with God that they Genesis talks about them walking together in the garden. Human beings are relating well to one another. No roommate quarrels going on here. These guys, are, these guys are like this with one another. Personally, Adam and Eve at peace with themselves. Isn't that a neat thought? And even, and I don't know ex- exactly what all this means, but even in some sense at harmony with nature. No wildfires, f- at least that. Enter sin and everything goes wrong. These humans who used to be in fellowship with God now hide when they hear him coming. These human beings who used to be in such harmony with each other now turn on each other and blame. These human beings who used to be at peace with themselves are now feeling shame at their nakedness. And these human beings who used to be in harmony with nature are now finding that nature is working against them. Thorns growing up when they try to grow crops. Childbirth being brought out of tremendous pain. All of that is as a result of sin, for sin spoils the good work of God. Fast forward to the cross. God's purpose in the cross was to solve the sin problem, not just to reconcile human beings to God, though that was the best news of the good news, but to erase the problem of sin from the world. It isn't happening all at once, but it is happening, and that's God's intent. The cross was God's final solution. It is D-Day. And the end of the battle is just a matter of time. Do you remember Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis? What season is it when the white witch rules? Always winter, but never Christmas. Do you remember what happens when Aslan is killed on the stone table? And then the next morning, he rises from the dead. The table breaks, but what happens to the season? changes to spring. And as the white witch is trying to race along in her sleigh, she comes across patches of grass and, and flowers where there used to be snow. That, my friends, is what God's grace is intended to do. It's to to loosen the grip of sin's winter on the world. And the most significant of those effects is our alienation from God, But all of those effects, all the curse of sin, God's intention is to remove that as well. Because Jesus accomplished what he did on the cross, God elevates him to this place of honor. You still with me? Not only in this age, Paul says, but also in the one to come. Paul's not just saying, hey, my God's bigger than your God. This is not schoolroom bravado. My dad can beat up your dad. Paul is saying that tomorrow, it will only be my dad your dad won't even be here. This age to come that he's talking about is when God's plan is finally and fully and completely accomplished, and the world is free of the effects of sin. Think about that. No more alienation from God. No more alienation from each other. No more alienation from oneself. No more alienation with nature. It is the world as God intended it to be. That's the age to come. God's kingdom has come. Jesus' prayer and the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, is finally answered. Now, I don't have time to go into all that this means and when it's going to happen. I don't have any charts. I don't have a TV show to preach this stuff. I'm just here to tell you that one day, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the age to come. And you're saying, that's great, but what about the church? That's where you got us started. What about the church? Well, look at verses 22 and 23. All of this power that God has given to the church, or to Christ, is, note it, for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, i got I to take a minute and, and let this sink in because I'm just living my private Christian life, just me and God. I'm trying to do what Jesus would do. I'm trying to please God. I'm trying to get to heaven. It's just me and God. I'm running the race set before me. I'm trying to get there, God. I'm working out to make sure that I'm, I'm fit spiritually. I'm going to my spiritual health club, the church. I'm working out there. I'm meeting my friends. I'm liking this, God. I'm on my way. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, God interrupts us with this verse. I'm used to thinking that the church is a good thing, but it's, kinda, it's expendable. And if I don't like that health club, if they don't give me enough towels or if their equipment doesn't work, I'm going to go to another health club. And if I don't like the people that go to this health club, I'm going to go to another one. And if you ask the people in the world about the church, it won't be very long before they use the word irrelevant. And all of a sudden, I meet this verse. And Paul is saying, don't miss it, Paul is saying that the church is the most relevant the most powerful institution the universe has ever seen the church is the only institution of which humans can be a part that will be in eternity it's only the church that the church did you get this is the fullness of christ who fills everything in every way this is a very different picture than the one that first came to your mind when we talked about the church i'll bet you're thinking that struggling body of believers that can hardly pay its bills and isn't even always nice to each other. But that's not the church. The church is the body of Christ. That's what Paul says. It's the body of Christ. I'm so glad he gave us that analogy. It helps me, helps me get my hands around it when I think of the church as the body of Christ. Well, now it makes sense why all this authority has been given to the church because it's the body of Christ. And now I understand what God wants the church to be doing. He wants the church to embody Christ in the world. You and I, friends, as a part of the church, we are the body of Christ. Now you're saying, that's, that's old news, Steve. I've heard this before. I, I, I grant that you have. We talk about the body of Christ as the church, but usually, usually we're talking about the way the church relates to each other. You and I, I'm an ear, we work together. And while that's true, and Paul's gonna get to that, That's not the way he's using the body of Christ right now. Make no mistake. Paul is saying that the church is the embodiment of Christ in the world. And what does that mean? Well, at very least, it means this. That wherever the church encounters people, it ought to treat those people the same way Christ did. Gently, lovingly, leading them to God. But that is not all the church is supposed to be doing. For the church to embody Christ means that the church must carry out the work that Christ began. What he started on the cross, the church is meant to continue. To put it another way, the church is meant to bring the spring of God's grace into a world in winter. Now, what does that include? Well, certainly it means that we ought to be reconciling people to God. We ought to be introducing people to him. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And then he says, and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Certainly what it means to bring the spring of God's grace into a world in winter means that you and I ought to be reconciling, helping to reconcile people to God, but that's not all it means. The gospel is good news, certainly because it means that we can be reconciled to God, but it isn't really good news unless it takes care of the rest of the problem of sin's curse. And this is why Paul writes in Romans 8 about creation groaning as if it's in childbirth, waiting for the redemption. Your job and mine is to work the work of Christ in the world today. And it isn't really good news unless you and I are at work to try to remove the effects of sin from the world. In other words, for us, for you individually to be the body of Christ in the world means that you need to do your part consciously as the body of Christ in the world. You're not just a nurse. You're not just going to be a nurse. You should be a part of the body of Christ whose calling is to be a nurse. Semantics, just playing with words, not at all. Because you're not just going to be a nurse because you can be sure to find a job. And you're not just going to be a nurse because you like to help people. And you're not just going to be a nurse because you have skills that can bring healing. You want to be a nurse at least in part as a part of the body of Christ because disease, sickness, is part of the effect of sin's curse. And you as a nurse can bring the spring of God's grace, the warmth of God's grace into that hospital room by bringing healing into that hospital room. That's what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. To do the work of Christ is to work with Christ to undo the effects of sin in the world, wherever you find them. You're not a lawyer, you're a part of the body of Christ who's practicing law. Why? Because injustice is an effect of sin in the world, and justice is a manifestation of God at work in the world. I'm not saying these things are equal in significance. To reconciling human beings to God but I am saying that it isn't good news unless we're doing all of it. That's what it means for you to be the body of Christ. To do your part to be the body of Christ Can I confess something on behalf of the university? We've given you a half truth since you've been here We've told you that you're supposed to be world changers. You're not Leave world changing to the church You change the world through the church And how do you go about changing the world without being changed by it? I'm so glad you asked. It's by the church gathered. What we've been talking about so far in being the body of Christ in the world is the church scattered out in the world, but there is also the church gathered when we get together. What are we doing? We're recalibrating so that we're in tune with the head. We're feeding at the Lord's table as the body, eating the body and blood of Christ. We're listening. We're listening to the voice of the head through the word as it's preached to us. We're allowing the part of the body of Christ that we call ordained ministers to equip us so that we can go out and change the world through the church when we're scattered. It is the church gathered that keeps the church scattered faithful. What does it mean to be the body of Christ? It means that you're not just here as students. You're here as a part of the body of Christ that is preparing to be better equipped to change the world as the church. You are a part of the body of Christ in the world, on the streets. Now you've got to do your part. Every one of you has a part. You may be an eye, you may be an ear, you may be a foot, you may be a hand, you may be a toenail, but be a good one. You won't change the world all by yourself, but you must do your part. Because you are a part of the body of Christ but listen you're only a part there's too much out there to do for you to do it by yourself so just remember don't get overwhelmed you're only a part of the body of Christ he's been at work right from the beginning with the church making a difference in the world and as long as Christ waits before he comes back he'll be working through the church to change the world you don't have to do it you just have to do your part until he comes back. And he will come back. You promised that. And when he comes back, then he'll finish what he started. It was not our job to finish it. There's the, the effects of sin are too far-reaching for us to get to them all. But we weren't supposed to. Just be faithful till he comes back, he says. And then he'll finish the job. But that isn't all he's going to do because Paul makes it very clear that when he comes back, we who've already been given this tremendous power, this tremendous authority to make a difference in the world, we'll get even more. He talks about it in verse 18. The glorious inheritance of the saints. He says in Ephesians 5 that the church will be like a beautiful bride prepared for her bridegroom. I know the analogies switch here. We go from being the body of Christ to the bride of Christ, but then we are presented as a church spotless, beautiful, prepared for the bridegroom. That's what we have to look forward to. That's the church. And so until that time comes, let's, you and me, do our part as the body of Christ in the world. Will you stand with me? We confess that we have uh, treated this precious thing far too casually seeing only what we see and not what really is there. Remind us when we're tempted to complain that in fact the church is the heir to the riches of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Remind us, Father, to do our part, to be a part of the body of Christ and to do whatever we do consciously and to wait in anticipation for the day when we are presented to you as the church as a beautiful bride adorned for her husband. And until then, until then, let us be faithful to the calling we've received to be the body of Christ. There's tremendous potential right here in this room. Fill us with the optimism of your grace to be a spring in a cold world. In Jesus' name, amen.